On this episode, I interview Rich Bainey. He is the previous CEO of the EW Scripps Company. I was a little nervous before I interviewed him, but I have to tell you, he is an incredibly humble man. Not many people know that he actually failed out of college three times and then later became the CEO at a very early age. He is one of the architects of HGTV and what became the Food Network. In this episode, I love that he shares his outlook on rejuvenating a dying business. We talk about fake news and the First Amendment. Enjoy. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a blessing. Your dream. and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I'd like to welcome Rich Bainey. Rich, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm honored to be able to join. Well, we're honored. I actually have been so excited about this. I told Anna on the way down here, I'm like, I'm a little nervous, <laughs> but nerves is good, yes. right? Absolutely. Yeah, because that, yeah. makes, that makes me be more on my feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Smarter, smarter. Yeah. How about that? Fear and guilt are great motivators. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yeah, they are, yes. actually. Yeah. They yeah. really are. Okay. Well, first, Rich, I do want a little bit of background about mm. you. Like, where okay. did you grow up? Tell me about your family. Sure. I grew up as, uh, although I'd been around, I grew up in northern Kentucky okay. and in Cincinnati. My father, my family is, uh, for the most part, from rural Kentucky. Okay. And my father took a job at a factory in Norwood. And so the family moved into town. So I grew up in Fort Thomas, went to Highlands High School. Uh, and my father worked in that factory in Norwood for more than 40 years. Wow. My mother, also from rural Kentucky, uh, was uh, stayed home with us the first few years and then went back to work and worked as a teacher's aide in a school district. How many siblings? I have one sibling. Sister uh, or brother? Sister. I have one sister. Okay. Uh, she's the smarter of the two. She's a, a brilliant financial analyst and... Uh, uh, I've been the lifelong snake oil salesman, making it up as I go. <laughs> and and I she's heard... the one that's actually accomplished. Oh, my gosh. I don't think that. I no. mean, I, I'm sure she's accomplished, but so are you. So tell me, I, I heard that first-generation college. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I was uh, a first-generation you know, bachelor's degree uh, in my family. And my parents, like many, thought uh, it would be a good idea if I go to college. And we can talk about that at some point. There's uh, yeah. There's a pretty decent failure story in there as well. But yes, very incredibly proud to be a first-generation college student uh, who, thanks to a good education that was affordable through a public university, Northern Kentucky University, uh, in one generation, you know, I can be the grandson of a, of a dirt farmer, um, son of a factory worker, and a mother who worked in a school district, and I can end up the CEO of a large public corporation. I mean, that really is, uh, if you look around the world, that really is uh, an only in America kind of mobility story. And do you think that's because of the education? I uh, could not have done it without the education. Uh, you, you know, I needed the bachelor's degree, needed that level of education, plus Northern Kentucky University in that journalism department that I went through uh, had a number of just fantastic professionals who were adjuncts and serving and just helped me uh, in unbelievable ways get my career started. So what's the failure story? Well, I was uh, uh, like you know many young men 
Uh, everything seemed fine till about 16 or so when things just left the rails. Yeah. Uh, kind of bumped my way out of high school and then just uh, had a, a miserable time in college. Uh, my parents really wanted me to go. I wanted to go. I had gone to a high school where nearly all kids went on to college. Okay. And um, first semester was disastrous. They let you come back for a second one, right, just to see if it was an anomaly. It was not an anomaly. Uh, I flunked out after that second semester. They decided it would be best if I took a break. Kind of came back. Same thing happened again. Um, came back, repeated the pattern. It happened again. And so I, you know, found myself, you know, really done for good sitting on a .67 average or whatever. Uh, why? So why? Yeah. I'm not sure. I Some of it was probably... Like maturity? Uh, yeah, immaturity. I think some of it had to do with... Um, uh, I, I struggled to learn to read and struggled to understand a learning style. I think today uh, students and children are probably dealt with more directly than yes. they were. I'm 62 years old, so I, I, went to, I went to a great school district, but still was in the 60s, and you didn't deal with students maybe as much as we do today. So I, I just couldn't get it from head to paper. And uh, so I had one of those high school careers where teachers would say, you are so smart. What is wrong with you? Right. Yeah, why can't you, why don't you clean up your act and, and do well? And I just, I could, uh, just absolutely could not make it happen. So what was the tipping point? What changed it? Uh, I think the tipping point was um, uh, sheer terror in my early, t- heading toward mid-20s. I was working at one point as a custodian at a YMCA and you know, looking in the mirror in the locker room thinking, I kind of dug a hole here. I want to be a newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. I need a bachelor's degree. Uh, and I, th- I think I'd really convinced I couldn't do. I'd convinced myself I couldn't do it. I was convinced that I was a, you know, I'd failed or I was a failure, and that I better think about a plan B. But I had matured just a little bit and decided to make one more run at it. So I went back on my knees. Um, no one else would take me. Others turned me down based on. I'm, <laughs> they looked Previous at my. They the looked at my transcripts, right? And looked at other things that were in the file and just said, you know, we're not going to take a risk on this guy. But at NKU, there was a young admissions officer. And, you know, I said, look, I tell you, I I know this is like the fourth time I've been here, but I really would like one more shot. And um, so at the time, they had contracts, like an academic probationary contract. Sure. So I, I think I had learned my learning style by then. I understood my learning style which took a long time. Came back in, I repeated F's and D's for a long time, uh, enjoying what it was like to be on probation and the dean's list at the same time. I'm getting straight A's, but I've, you know, my GPA is still really low. Right, right. So I just, I dug my way uh, out. I was just so fortunate. How did you figure out the learning style piece then? I think I, you know, for example, I can't memorize anything. Okay. Uh, so, you, you know, I, I, I can't write longhand. I have all those kinds of typical problems. So I had to learn that I can't memorize. Rote learning is not going to work for me. Um, but once I could understand it, as long as I could conceptualize. Okay. Um, 
then I could uh, not regurgitate, but I could, uh, you know, I could do well in classes. Like, were but you more of an auditory learner? Or auditory, were... experiential, visual, mm -hmm. uh, struggle quite a lot with, um, you know, with written word, which sounds which very odd. Funny. I've made a, I a, made a pretty made good a career as a, as a writer, but right. But I think I had to kind of, uh, uh, kind of get back to understanding uh, how my head worked and and how I communicated. But I also feel like. Um, you can provide a different um, kind of lens for those people who maybe the written word isn't their yeah, preferred. Yeah, or, or just uh, education as it is. I, I have a son who's a teacher. He teaches at the Lighthouse School here in Cincinnati. And he also, you know, really struggled and hated sort of uh, – uh, Typical you know, academia or something. Yeah, it was very hard for him as well. And one of the things I think I've learned through him is uh, most of the schools, the education structure, uh, it works well for those who it worked well for, and it perpetuates itself. Yeah. And for those of us who struggled uh, within the norm, you know, it doesn't work very well for, and we find ourselves on the outside. Um, he, by the way, he's an outstanding teacher, uh, was a high school dropout. And, you know, everybody panicked at home. Oh, my gosh, Jake's <laughs> not going to go back to school. Right. But, um, yeah, we had to give him some room. And he, four or five years later, called and said, by the way, I'm going back through the University of Missouri, and I'm going to be a, uh, a teacher. teacher. And he's a fantastic teacher. I love that. Yeah. It's a good success story. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I handed him some genetics that made it a challenge <laughs> to start with. Yeah, but he's clearly uh, in his right calling. He's in the right place. Yeah. But I I think I've learned now uh, from my experience, high schoolers and also college students, you know, a lot of them get just, they get off the rails, they get outside, and it's so hard to make it back. Yeah, I know. Uh, too few just don't. I've got a family member, and yeah, she hasn't made it back yet. But I just keep... Yeah. She'll, when it's the right time. and But actually, you know what the other thing is? Maybe traditional education is not the right fit for her. Maybe she needs that, a trade maybe. school. Maybe she needs something different, you know? Yeah, or, or a different uh, uh, higher ed structure of some kind. Right. Yeah, they're out there. So while we're on this topic of education, yeah. so one of the things when I got my research about you mm -hmm. that I read is that um, colleges have – there's something with colleges and First Amendments. Yeah, that, well, free speech is uh, under attack on many campuses. Okay, can you That's, explain that? Because I don't know anything about this. Yeah, sure. That's not not um, you know just do a little uh, you know internet search and you'll find the problems that are on campuses. Uh, uh, it's it's so strange to me to have uh, current environments on many campuses where free speech is not what most of us would consider free. It's um, free speech that, that's uh, that where there's prior restraint and yes, yeah, censored and there's filters and and these ideas of hate hate speech and other things have have so um, moved out and developed that on many campuses across the country, it's a little difficult to say a lot of things or to have certain discussions in classrooms. I, so it's in classrooms, but it's also is it also like like outside of the classroom too? You can't pick it. You can't. Uh, well, you can like certainly pick it. You got to be careful what what you would say. 
Um, but I, I think, again, there's a generation that has a very different view of what free speech is. And it's what is it for you? Uh, for me, it's bare naked, um, you know, no prior restraint, real free speech. You say whatever you want. Now you have to suffer the marketplace consequences of that. But more and more and more, I think we're seeing a push in our country for prior restraint, that there are, there are some things that just shouldn't be said, can't be discussed. You know, it's, it's just, it, it just ain't woke, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and I understand all those issues, and I'm supportive of every single one of them. But when it comes to the there won't be any dialogue and that penalty for trying to bring open discussion, it's really worrisome. So um, my other question, obviously, I was going to ask you around this whole concept of like fake news yeah. and where where did we start to go wrong and, and how <laughs> how do we, you know, what are the next steps that we need to do to ensure that the First Amendment and that free speech yeah. is protected? Well, I think probably the most important thing to remember that people forget uh, free speech is freer than it's ever been in human history thanks to the digital revolution okay. and the internet. There's never, ever been a time like this when speech is so free uh, at a time when anybody can have a voice. I mean, th- think about it today. Uh, billions of people on Earth, uh, on Facebook or any social media, can have an identity. Right. So you can, you can literally look in on somebody in Zimbabwe or Sweden or Russia Peer to peer, it's just uh, it's just absolutely phenomenal. There's never been anything like this. Uh, that's created a wild west environment, and we're still very much in it. There's so much adjustment yet to happen, but but how do we know what's accurate and not accurate? <laughs> uh, I don't think it's any different than it has been for hundreds of years. You have to be discerning. Um, what what's just so different? There was a time when, as a newspaper editor. Uh, if you were an organization or a company with a product or whatever, and you wanted people in the community to know about it, you had to come through us. You had no choice, right? We were the real ultimate gatekeepers. Right. Today, you can go right around, right? You 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 can build your own voice. Uh, you you don't have to have us in order to get your get your message out. Uh, that means that you know this uh, fragmentation of voices from all ends of the spectrum is uh, like we've never seen before. So how is the Associated Press, because I know that you're vice chair of the Associated Press, so how does the Associated Press um, create, uh, I don't know if it's policy or Mm -hmm. procedure around ensuring that that they are discerning facts? Yeah, well, that's a good old fashioned commitment to balance, to sitting in the middle um, the AP, its value really is as uh, uh, the organization that sits in the middle, covers the entire world, places that nobody else goes. The AP is there. And it's the facts first. And it, sure, it's, it's analysis and background and things like that. But it's a commitment to sit in the middle and not be ever aligned or drift in one uh, direction or the other. But it, 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 if you... People always uh, – so constantly people stop me and say, I wish we could go back to the good old days with journalism. I say, the good old days was when there were eight or ten newspapers in a market, po- Republican, Democrat, German, you, you know, right. socialist, communist. You know, that's what it used to be. There was this brief period that we all think of that really was sort of the, 
you know, the late 60s through the late 80s, that was the anomaly. Mm. Uh, the fragmented, more uh, opinionated kind of media, that's, if you look back in history, that's more the norm. Okay. We're just sort of getting back to normal, I'm afraid. Um, but people have to discern our industry, I think, does actually a pretty good job. There are there are voices on both ends, right? But uh, there are a lot of tremendous voices in the middle that do great work. Okay, so I probably am not allowed to ask this question, but I'll yeah. ask it anyway. Where do you go to get your news? Well, I, you know, I'm probably I'm not uh, w- wouldn't be uh, a normal news consuming American since I'm in the business. But the AP yeah. is is uh, absolutely fantastic. The Washington Post. Now owned by Jeff Bezos is uh, uh, that's the, that, that's a, a servant's heart behind the mm-hmm. Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, the New York Times, and then you have a wonderful new crop. And, and I'm leaving some out. I still like sure, CNN sure, sure. and others, sure. but you have a new crop of targeted at younger news consumers. We own one at Scripps, Newsy. Right. It's fantastic. Vice, Vice News. If you've seen Vice News's work on what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, it's just absolutely tremendous. Why? Um, they embedded a reporter with the um, uh, aggressive right wing uh, and um, just happened to be there when things unfolded. Uh, it's a. They did a 30-minute special that's really absolutely fantastic. You can see it on HBO or on, on Vice, or you can find it on YouTube. And then there's Mike, and there's now this, and there's this other new crop, that's coming up. So I, I feel pretty good about the news business going forward. I was more worried a few years ago than I am today. Really? Yeah. Why? Uh, it, the economics were just so rattled. Uh, you know. Be, it, in, it, the media industry used to be very inefficient. Yes. And inefficiency pays really well. It's now ruthlessly efficient, so you need a lot of scale. And we were just so discombobulated. But, yeah, it feels much better today. And young people are flocking into the business. So you, I know, were part of a lot of um, rebirth of different mm-hmm. things. So the creation of HGTV, yeah. Food Network, I think, too. Or did Food Network come from HGTV? No, it was it was a little mess. And okay. uh, we convinced our bosses to let us buy it. Okay. All yeah. right. So we're going to get on those. But like, yeah, sure. you were part of like resurgence of things, right? Mm-hmm. And rebirth of things. Yep. So like what you just described that a couple years ago, it wasn't efficient. Mm-hmm. Now it's more efficient. Okay, let's talk about, so when you're in the midst of those and tough times are tough. Yes. How, kind of like when you had that moment in the bathroom when you were mm-hmm. realized you got to go back to school. Yeah. Um, what's the lesson for people on how to have a different lens, a different approach, a different view? Yeah. Well, one is to always have the long view, right? I mean, there's... Because 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 newspapers were like a dying business, and you had absolutely. to absolutely yeah. I made terribly hard decisions around newspapers, but um, like I say you got to take the long okay. the long view. Many people are just view. not capable of the. And I, I for me personally, it's a really long view. I mean, if you look at um, you know life is extremely short in terms of real history, right? right? We're just like a little light that blinks on, and it's there for a few moments, then it blinks off. And uh, 
as important as we think everything is, um, I'm not sure it's all that important. Yeah. Right. If you just remember that uh, 50 years from now, most of us will be in a box or in an urn. Another 50 years, they may not even remember our name, right? It's, uh, it's just not as important as some of us think it is. That's always helped me. Yeah. Just, you know, perspective. It's funny you're saying that because this morning I read something around Rule 62, which is don't take yourself so seriously. It's yes. kind of similar to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, has really benefited uh, my career. Uh, I do believe there's opportunity in chaos. And when the type A's around you are just melting down or screaming and, you know, they can't take it anymore and everybody's <laughs> indignant and, you know, you just sit back and you look and uh, you're then in control. And so just take a nice, calm view of things and look for the opportunity in the chaos. Uh, and there's always opportunity in the chaos, thanks to the crazy type A's who just spin out of control and get everything into okay, a Okay, will you give me a funny story or a cool story of an example of that? Um, let's see. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you. And maybe one that you haven't <laughs> shared with others before. I like yeah, to I don't have know like cutting edge news in here. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I've probably got several of them. Uh, here's, I think, one of the most um, fun. We we had uh, launched HGTV and had gone very well. And HGTV was the idea of a guy named Ken Lowe, who was my friend at Scripps, former radio DJ. So HGTV was created at 312 Walnut for the in most Cincinnati, part. In Cincinnati, yeah. Yeah, here in town. And he lived out in Anderson Township. Uh but so we had done that, and then we, we convinced our bosses to let us buy Food Network, which was a little New York-based kind of a mess. But we had home and garden food. We were adding consumer categories yes. you know, going along. So we looked and said, you know, there's a huge category of magazines aimed at the high end. All kinds of them, right? There are just tons of them. Like Architectural Digest kind yeah, of Yeah, all those, like those. Aimed at the up, right? Okay. So okay. we said we sh- there should be a – something on television, so working with some other people, we had a plan for a network called Fine Living. Oh, I and remember that. Sure, yeah, and and if you look at it on paper, it should work. There's enough of a... Like was Martha Stewart on Fine Living? Uh, no. Yeah, she might have She might have had a, one of the shows on Fine Living. I can't I okay. can't remember. Okay. But uh, anyway, so right. we, we had this plan for Fine Living, and we were getting ready to launch, and uh, the morning of 9-11, and I, I was uh, on a plane out at CVG that was sitting on the tarmac wondering, why are we not going to New York, right? I it's need to be there. out of Cincinnati. Yeah. Why are we not leaving? Yeah. Why are we not leaving? And come back in, look on the monitors. Oh, my gosh. Here's here's what happened. Um, I run back downtown to my office here. And as you can imagine, it's sort of a command right. scene. You know, we're trying to figure out what to do. Because <laughs> do you have employees in New York at this time? We had many employees in New York. Took yeah. us took us days to to get them all sorted out. We didn't lose anybody. Um, yeah, and talk about people. We had people in places like um, Tulsa, where we have a building that's only three stories tall, and people are looking out the windows and just can't work. They're just right. paralyzed. Right. You know, it's and they're calling in Cincinnati saying we have to we got to close down. I mean, we can't. I said we can't close down. We're in the news business, and here's what we do. But anyway, we. <laughs> In the middle of that, several people walk into my office and say, um, we can't do fine living. I, I mean, the world has changed. We're all going to die from the delivery of white powders and terrorists. And I mean, we can't do something called fine living. It's just crazy. And um, 
pretty normal reaction, right? right? I think most of us thought the world did change that yeah. day. Yeah. Uh, probably, unfortunately, it didn't change as much as it probably needed to. But, um, you know, in the midst of that, I'm thinking, we've got a lot of money in- invested. We're getting ready to do a launch. Uh, you know, we just everybody just needs to calm down and let's see how it sorts out. No, I don't think we need to declare to everybody today, we're not going to do fine living because the towers fell. Let's, let's, right. just, let's just take a deep breath. Yeah. Ultimately, fine living did not work very well, and it was ultimately converted. It's now cooking channel. Was, oh, yeah. That was yeah. the flip that we did. It was a great effort. We had to work our way through 9-11 and a huge crisis. Do you think it, do you think it didn't work because of what changed and shifted then? I think it didn't work because there's not, there was not the right market on linear television for it. It's a, it it's what a, does that mean? Well, you know, everybody – Everybody of a certain income, kind of the top 20%, spends discretionary income on some sort of something they're passionate about. Okay. Might be watches. It might be a car. Wine or might be, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't believe how many people are interested in wine. To me, it, I know cork, cap, red, and white. That's, uh, <laughs> right. that's the extent of my wine knowledge. Um, but so people sort of access their passion more directly. And if you think about on what uh, – Linear television, not going to sit and watch a wine show, then a watch show, then a car show. Okay. Um, okay. It just doesn't work on a linear base, on a linear format, I think. Okay. It was a heck of an attempt, Gosh. though. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. remember. It, was, yeah. it wasn't bad. Yeah. No, it was pretty good. So how did um, HGTV come about? Like, how did how did you come up with that? Well, uh, so I was a young executive at Scripps, and- uh, Ken Lowe, who was, had been a radio – I came out of the newspaper division. He came out of radio and television. And we had another very good friend, a guy named Frank Gardner, who was a very well-known TV executive, worked at CBS and was at Scripps. But anyway, Ken Lowe came to a few of us and said, uh, I have an idea for a cable network about homes and gardens. And as we always say, we, we, we laughed hysterically. said, Ken, 24 hours a day, grass growing and paint drying? I mean uh, – <laughs> Ken, now come on, buddy. This is just not going to work. But we went to his uh, basement, if I remember, and you know, drank beer and ate chicken out of a bucket. And he walked through an absolutely fabulous plan for this cable network. And a lot of it was built on he tore sections out of newspapers and sections out of magazines and said, "Now, you know, think about the network. This is a show. You know, d- different kind of categories." That's actually the way we pitched it to the board with things torn out of newspapers and magazines on big poster boards to walk the board through. But anyway, like Ken- Like that simple. You, it was like, that It wasn't like simple. it was super digitized and like video and all this stuff. Not at the time, no. Torn this out. is uh, This is 93. So, uh, and if you think about it, cable at the time, cable started as, as an antenna business because reception was not good in some places. Right. That's why cable started. So you're almost 20 years into cable before people say, wait a minute, this is a platform for a different kind of programming and brand. So then came the niches, Home and Garden, CNN, ESPN. You know, those were really took a long time for people to think there's something different we can do with this right. than just retransmit broadcast television. So he, he had this just fantastic idea, and um, he's one of my closest friends, and as I tell him all the time, I tell people, using his presence, I all I did was bet, I was willing to kind of bet my young career on my friend's idea. Yeah. It was a great idea. 
I didn't feel like I had that much to lose. Uh, we hit some bumps along the way. Like what? Um, well, let's see. <laughs> uh, well, a gardening program is not as popular as we thought it would be. <laughs> did a lot of wacky garden shows that didn't really work. We did a um, <laughs> we did an auto repair show called Transmissions, I think, with Irene. An with old, Irene? She was an older woman from Pittsburgh who owned a transmission shop. I mean, a Dude, beehive. I love that. Beehive hairdo. I'm sorry I missed that. It was it was That was quite like a coming show. out when I was in college, so I wasn't watching much TV. No. Yeah. Yeah, we launched uh, first, really, first day in 95. But, it, but that's just television, right? You, yeah, you try uh, things. Yeah, you try stuff. Right? And then Food Network, HGTV was not profitable yet. And, you know, the board had given us money and we were building. And all of a sudden, Food Network was available. And so we started pounding the table. And the board saying, look, you know, you let you do this home and garden thing. And it's kind of coming along. But, it, you know, you're not making money. And now you want to you want to buy this other thing that's losing a fair amount of money. And we wanted to trade a very profitable business for it. So I, I did this big presentation for the Scripps board that showed we could trade a big TV station in Texas that made millions of dollars for something that was losing millions of dollars, and our stock would go up. Uh, and sometimes I look at it and think, and I did that with a straight face. Uh, but, um, but it was an incredible, if we look back, the people we bought it from, I still see them today, and they always say, you should have been wearing a mask when you did that deal, because it it worked out. Yeah. But then Food Network, we went through several uh, leaders, and uh, we had between New York and moving some of it to Knoxville. Right. It's always messy. Yeah. You know, and but then, uh, and it worked out over whole, time. And then that division, that spun off. We ultimately, uh, a few in 2008, um, but the one, one thing I would say in business is the long view. So Scripps is still controlled by the Scripps family. Yes. And it's a wonderful company for entrepreneurs. Has a very high risk tolerance. We, uh, you know, we make investments. Some things don't work. Overall, we've created incredible value for our shareholders. Mm -hmm. But uh, but you got to be patient, and you got to so, take a long view, and you got to hang with the folks when they fail. So the next evolution, which I think some of that is podcasts. Yes. Right. But what's yep, the podcasts. next evolution? Well, uh, so the networks. Uh, merged in with Discovery about six or eight months ago. So Scripps today, which is based here, is television, uh, you know, a big broadcast TV portfolio, and then podcasting, and then we own Newsy. Right. Uh, and have moved into some sort of uh, new platforms. But if you think about podcasting, yeah. for example, it's a fantastic storytelling platform. And tons of journalism that you used to see in big city newspapers, you find today in documentaries and on podcasting. Just fantastic new platform for storytelling. I love it. Yeah, I do too. It's it's just so, it's an intimate, wonderful platform. Um, can you share with some listeners what your favorite podcast is? Oh, other than Failing Forward, right? Yeah, Rich? that's right. Right. Um, I listened to. Well, I'll mention one that's ours. I'm yes. uh, because it was one of the first ones, and I'm still. I like Mark Maron a lot. WTF? Do you know Absolutely. he's my inspiration? Oh, really? No, like I'm not kidding you. Yeah. He. I have pondered writing him, but then I don't want to sound like a total he, freak. No, he would like that. He is my inspiration. He's my, he, he's my, that's my favorite podcast. 
I like him too. He's uh, he's sure a great interviewer. I'm sure you've met yeah, him. Yeah, and he, he, he if you listen to the interview he did with uh, President Obama. Yes, I have uh, in and, his garage. Yeah, and the and and to hear the president's uh, voice and the way he talked about things is just yeah. a. But Mar, I I, I love his podcast. Uh, his um, talk to Henry Winkler. I don't know if you ever listened to that one. I mean, he's um, no, I haven't. He's just very. Harry Winkler has a story you just can't imagine. The actor, you know, yeah, you just have yeah. to go back. Um, but then some of the others, I just listened to Caliphate, which is a New York Times uh, podcast okay. about the radicalization of uh, young young people that ended up in ISIS, and and then many of them sort of drifted back into the world and society. And who did who did you say did this? Uh, the New York Times. Wow. It's one okay. of theirs. Uh, they is it invest. On uh, you could find it on Stitch. You can find it on their site. Is okay. the easiest place to find it. They also devote enormous resources to just the good of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I just finished that one a couple of days ago. I'm do a big you, fan you... of Americana music. I listen to all kinds of wacky, um, wacky Americana music kind of podcasts and. Any like, stuff like so? That. Did you do any of the serials or did you yep. do S Town? Yes, uh, I like any of those that are uh, great cliffhanging, multi-episode storytelling. I love those. Yeah, and the same format works great in documentary on on TV. But Mark Maron, WTF, he is totally my jam. Yep, he's good. Oh, my God. He is amazing. Um, So I hit First Amendment. We Mm -hmm. talked about sort of this concept of like news and making sure that it's discernible news, right? Yeah. You know, if if I often tell people in the news industry, if half the country doesn't like us, if that's what the surveys show, that's our problem, not theirs. Uh, We if we need the respect of the other half of America, that's the burden is on us to earn that. It's not the fault of consumers and news consumers. We have to somehow fix that. Yeah, but but if they don't like you, it could be because they just don't. Could it be because they don't agree with the storytelling? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, you know, many years of media research. But I guess if it's honest and it's unbiased yeah. and news media research always shows that what people think is true is what they agree with. That's that's, and that's nothing new. Right. 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 It's just now that there are so many other places where you can just go hear what you happen to agree with. Do you have any idea what will be the next news evolution? I I know we said podcasts and stuff like that, but anything else? Yeah. um, Let's see the platforms. Um, No, I mean, we've just about penetrated most of the platforms. The big difference is now the the nonlinear nature of news as opposed to just live, right? where we're much more focused is on where we can create storytelling that you can access whenever, whenever you it. want it. Like on demand. Right? On demand, right. Okay. So one question. So you retired from Scripps in what year? Uh, I, I stepped down as CEO last year. Last year. Yeah, last okay. summer. So what's retirement been like for you? <laughs> and what's it's, like after working that many years, you know, nine to five job, yeah. how do you shift to How do you shift? Well, it's been hard I because I really have three uh, part-time jobs that are kind of demanding. Trying to juggle them, I think, has been, you know, kind of difficult. But I told our board starting five or six years ago, I said, look, I'm, I, I know I'm young, um, but 
you know, many of the decisions uh, at this company have been made by a couple of us for close to 20 years. Yeah. And it's time to it's time to transition. It's, How did you not have you had like no ego around that? You had no attachment. Um uh yeah, not a whole lot of attachment you're but, on the long view. Um my gosh, I mean uh how much more luck can one person have, you know? So I, that wasn't a real issue to me. Uh, I'm a steward. I'm a steward of a fantastic organization, and I thought it was very important to start that transition. So Adam Simpson is the new CEO at Scripps. He's 42 years old, maybe now 43. They handed us the company when we were in our 40s, uh, myself and Ken Lowe. They jumped us over a couple generations of managers and, yeah. and let us run the company. Uh, so I thought I thought it was time to do that again. That's very cool. Any last minute burning desires, things that you're like, you know what? We really need to talk about this. Uh, I feel compelled. No, I, I appreciate the uh, the the subject matter that you come at it from uh, people who have had some bumps and bruises. Most people have. Many of them just um, are not humble enough to admit it. Yeah. And to just. Uh, Learn from it. I always tell people who have failed, I said, you may have lost the battle, but you haven't lost the war. Right. And just, uh, you know, it's time to go on. Use it as an opportunity. I might want to end there because I yeah, think that's awesome. Fine. But I do have one more question. Sure. So do you think that you consciously created a culture at Scripps mm-hmm. that allowed people to fail with without negative consequences uh yes but it was there it was it was i I was so honored to to be the steward of it and to protect it uh but that's that's been around a long time at scripts if you look at the history of the it's a company that remakes itself every five to ten years and has done so very successfully. Okay, and I'm just advice? so honored to, to to get to hold that for a few years. So, what advice would you give to other companies or other leaders around huh. that and how to create that culture? Uh, do something to make to ensure that you can have a long view. Wall Street is, uh, uh, you know, very short term right now. That that and that's not just a cliche that people say. Um, investing cycles are unbelievably short right now, and it makes it very hard to find shareholders that will hang with you mm-hmm. during these periods. I hope that changes. I'm sure it will, because uh, there are cycles in investing in Wall Street just like there are anything else. But you got to get yourself into a some kind of place where you can invest in your entrepreneurs, invest in good ideas, and hang in there with them when it doesn't go so well, because it ain't going to always go so well. No. So when you say invest in your entrepreneurs... yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so we've at Scripps, we've always been willing to, to take people out of their current job and and provide capital and and you know help them um, build a business. Ken, Ken Lowe is the most recent fantastic example, building HGTV. Right. Uh, before that, a guy named Roy Howard walked down the hall to a bunch of people. There have been many other examples, but he said uh, this is in the '30s. He said, "Hey." They're going to go give out these broadcast TV licenses in Washington. And the, the company was run by newspaper barons at the time. They said, oh, well, TV, huh? Well, that's really cute. Uh, I guess go get you some of those licenses. So it, it was another one of those where you know the family and the management said, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll give you some room here. And, uh, and betting on television was a pretty darn good bet.
That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So a huge thank you to Rich Bainey. We actually kept the mics rolling, and our super producer, Anna Bolke, asked the question, how did he go from failing out of college three times to becoming the CEO? Take a listen. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I started to dig my way out of my academic hole, uh, and once I got my grade point average to the exact point that was required so you could graduate, that's what I did, and I, I applied, and I graduated. Um, I got a job at a weekly newspaper, the Dirt Track Circuit. What What uh, is that? Like like racetrack? Well, that's what we, we always say. You know, some people start on the dirt tracks, and some people start at the Indy 500. I started on the dirt tracks <laughs> at a weekly newspaper. Um, and my whole professional career... Uh, I, I really built it on being willing to do what others did not want to do. So you know what it's like sitting in the meeting and somebody wants something done and everybody looks at their shoes. And um, I didn't have I didn't have pedigree. I didn't have a lot that others had. So I always took on things that others didn't want to do. I I worked a, a year long Teamster strike in Pittsburgh at Scripps. One of my first assignments. Wild. Was your dad change. in the union? Like, could you kind of like? No, I uh, no, I had plenty of yeah. I knew plenty of people in the union. Okay, but I was part of it. The, the, we owned the very big Pittsburgh newspaper. It was a big, big business that was losing money, and the Teamsters really controlled the place. Nothing against the Teamsters or no. labor, you know. But so I was got to go in and <laughs> try to explain to big groups in Pittsburgh that we were losing money. You got shouted off a stage. It's Pittsburgh. Right, and then I spent a lot of time inside, crossing picket lines, watching violence, uh, and I remember uh, burning trucks. uh, uh, You know, people being thrown. Typical. This is a typical big time strike. It went on. The Teamsters shut down the newspaper in Pittsburgh for a year. A year. A year. Uh, Many of us had at times security at our homes here, uh, you know, during the strike. But it, I, so I'll tell you, one, we tried to publish, and the Teamsters found that somewhat offensive that we would actually try, and the violence got awful. And I went back into the war room, and, at the, and there were people sitting there who were running this business, and they're, they're in their 50s and 60s. And they just, and the Teamsters had shut it down. A judge had said, told us, no, you can't go ahead and publish. And it was over. And I walked into this war room, and there are people there who were then my age, and they're just weeping. You know, and it's just, they just knew it. You know, they were so emotionally tied up, and they knew it was over. And I remember I went back, and I was looking out the corner of a window, because ball bearings and rocks and everything else are flying in. And I remember thinking, I'm in my 30s. If I'm ever in a position of responsibility, I'll never, ever let something come to this. Because you're just looking out the window thinking, nobody's nobody's going to win. Nobody's winning. Nobody is going to win. It's just all disaster. And that, that made a huge difference in my career thinking how you have to work ahead. you got to take care of problems when they come. You, know, you can't put stuff off. Uh, made a huge, huge difference in my career just looking out that window thinking, I'm not going to be responsible someday for a situation where nobody wins. I did things like that. I took on I took on projects that other people didn't want and I built my career that way. 
I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. 